our case law, our, our law that emanates from the Supreme Court and those precedents are part of our legal system. And the notion of having something that is a right that's been in place for 50 years, just suddenly withdrawn, uh, the rug pulled out from under it, uh, is a recipe for chaos. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is part of the extended series leading up to the midterm elections called Candidate Conversations, where we chat with candidates from across the country whose races are deeply important but might not be getting as much of our attention. Our guest today is Jeff Ettinger, running for Congress in Minnesota's 1st District. This race is fascinating for a number of reasons. One, because it already happened. Jeff lost a special election to his opponent, Brad Feinstadt, in August when they competed to fill the seat vacated by Republican Jim Hagerton, who died in office in February. But they will run against each other again to see who will represent the district for the full two-year term in November. Two, because it's easy to think that the district will just go to the Republicans because Trump won it by 10 points in 2020. But that was before the 1-6 insurrection, before the 1-6 committee proved Trump knew he hadn't won and tried to stay in power anyway. That was before Roe was overturned and Republicans proposed a national abortion ban and before Feinstad voted against the incredibly popular Inflation Reduction Act. At the end of the day, Ettinger only lost by around 5,000 votes, and they are expecting to have more than 200,000 more people turn out for the general. Finally, this race is fascinating because the candidate himself is fascinating. On paper, Jeff Ettinger could potentially fit in with the Republicans or the Democrats. A CEO who made lots of money running the Minnesota-based meatpacking giant Hormel Foods, he's a centrist in things like business and inflation, but a progressive when it comes to democracy, women's rights, and public education. He supported Mitt Romney's presidential bid, but also gave a fortune to Amy Klobuchar's run for president and then Biden after he won the nomination. He's a man with deep ties to his conservative-leaning rural community, but was born and raised in liberal California. He appeals to all types of voters, and in a district with a history of flipping red to blue so often it's considered solid purple, he might just be the candidate to flip this seat. While Ettinger considers himself an open-minded bridge builder, his opponent is lockstep with the extremist version of the Republican Party. And with our democracy, human rights, and social services on the line, we have to take the contrast between these two candidates extremely seriously. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, former CEO of Hormel Foods, leader of the Hormel Foundation, and Democratic congressional candidate for Minnesota's 1st District, Jeff Ettinger. Welcome, Jeff. Oh, thanks so much for having me today, Lee. Thank you for joining me. I wanted to make sure that people heard from you, not just because I think people assume your race is just going to go to your opponent, but because that's not true. Democrats have a big pickup chance here. So not only should people not write you off, we need to be out here highlighting the difference between you and your opponent. Yeah, we've already had a dry run of this. So we had a special election since our, our congressman passed away and we came within 4%. Uh, the last time, that's only 5,000 votes, and there's going to be 200,000 more voters in our district here in a November election. So we're, we're actively getting out and talking to not only the new voters, but those who, who cast their vote in the primary as well. You said you were inspired to run because of the events of 1-6 and your predecessor's vote to not certify the 2020 presidential election, but also because of the country's kind of increasing lurch towards extremism and partisanship and hostility and what you call a general lack of respect, which you believe ultimately leads to a lack of results. Oh, definitely. I mean, you look at the events of January 6th, 
horrible scenes of the rioting, of the disrespect to uh, Capitol Police, to seeking out Vice President Pence or Nancy Pelosi to either hang them or kidnap them or whatever the goal was. And then, you know, later that night, even after 60 chances in court to turn over the election, even after the riot, to have our local congressperson vote not to certify the election to me was appalling. And so uh, when the special election was declared, when he passed away from cancer in February, um, my initial reaction was to, would have been to support Dan Feehan, who ran the last time and who I supported the last time. But Dan chose not to run. And so I, I really kind of wrestled with, OK, I haven't ever done this before, but I really don't want to see the district, which has been a long time purple district the whole time I've lived here. Uh, just become kind of a, just a routine. Okay, it's somebody far right who only represents the far right. So I decided dinner. You jumped in. I appreciate that. That's what I want everyone to do, to get involved. That's what we have to be doing. I mean, listen, you're a man that knows something about putting in the work to get results, right? You moved to Minnesota in 1990 to be an attorney for the Hormel company. And then over 15 years, you worked your way up through the company to become CEO. And under your 11 years of leadership, Hormel doubled its sales, more than quadrupled its market value, and added almost 4,000 jobs. And on top of that, you were named responsible CEO of the year. So it seems like you kind of know what you're doing when it comes to an organization that needs change, that needs movement. And it sounds like you were also just a pretty great boss, right? Like, under your leadership, Hormel paid its line workers to get free mechanical training. Your workers were unionized. Your company had a profit sharing program, which was enhanced under your leadership to include stock options for your employee. And your board was one of the most diverse of a company your size. So to me, you're the perfect person to now run for office because you know what it's like to run a company that big. I think I can bring some unique, uh, you know, economic experience at a time when people have some economic anxiety with inflation going on. I, I certainly have a lot of familiarity with controlling costs and with creating jobs and those types of things. And I, I've always been just a big believer in opportunities at, at a local community level. And, and so whether it's you know, through the Hormel Foundation that I chair right now, or just over the years of being just an active member of the community is something I, I deeply believe in. Well, I think people think that business leaders are all kind of heartless money grubbers who don't care about their workers. But there's definitely more than one way to run a company. And it looks like you kind of proved that. Yeah, I mean, Hormel is a kind of a unique entity anyways, in the sense of it's in us, we're in a small town. So I'm talking to you from Austin, Minnesota. I still, Leanne and I still live here. It's a town of 25,000, two hours south of the Twin Cities. But it's the headquarters, it's the corporate headquarters of the town. It's the R&D headquarters of the town. And we also have the company's largest plant is, is in Austin. And so we're all in the community together. We've lived in our house, the same house since 1995. Our kids all went to Austin High School. Everybody goes to the same school. And so I think the, that mentality of just kind of doing things the right way and, and a really a long-term mentality. The company was founded in 1891. And because of some of the unique ownership structures by having a foundation in place, we're pretty much takeover proof, so we can do the right things for our employees and have much more of a long-term orientation. Isn't that nice? I wish more companies could do that. You've been really clear that you're more than just a former executive and you're more than just a politician. You've, you've been very clear that you're actually not a politician and that you're not in this position where you think that you can just come in and run government like a business. You got in this race to address the problems that politicians seem unwilling or unable to fix. And you believe that having fixed things and dealt with these kind of problems in your business will be able to inform your ability to represent your district in Congress. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? 
Sure. I mean, I, I definitely have always had a results orientation. You know, people see that kind of easily or clearly in business. But to me, I think it applies to government. If we embark upon something to try to improve somebody's life, I think it's incumbent upon us to take a look after a while. Is this working? I mean, if it's not, it's probably that's maybe not the right solution for the taxpayer and it's not helping the intended beneficiary. So let's try something different. So definitely that kind of a results orientation. And then just to me, I always try to have a very collaborative management style. I'm interested in multiple opinions. I, I totally recognize just being one member of Congress would be is going to be quite different than being the CEO of a company. But I've always tried to kind of operate on a persuasion basis, a collaboration basis, and those kind of things I think are needed in Washington. Yeah. And you didn't start as a CEO. You've done a lot of different jobs, right? You've you've right. moved around a lot. And I think sometimes we forget because we've sort of dichotomized business people and politicians. But a CEO could be good in Congress because you could bridge the gap between the two worlds. Like you said, you could speak to things like inflation. You might not, you're coming from a rural district, but you might not be from a farming family, like say your opponent, but you're deeply familiar with agriculture and all that comes with it. You have hands-on knowledge with getting actual people healthcare and getting actual jobs into actual people's lives and helping people gain job skills. I think it's one of the reasons you believe so much in top-notch edu education, right? Because it means that they'll qualify for good wage jobs. No, absolutely. I mean, we, we've had some opportunities here in our local community to get involved in creating opportunities. We, we brought paid summer internship program down from the cities uh, and introduced it to the Austin community. Our Hormel Foundation has created a scholarship program. So two-year scholarship available at our local community college for all of our grads. Uh, Leanne and I have helped brought another program down from the city's wall and education partners. And so we're up to 36 students that we, we provide in that area. And so the, I do think it's something that would help Southern Minnesota. I mean, the, the current challenge on an economic basis clearly is inflation. And again, I think I have a, a lot of background in cost control that can help with that. But the longer term challenge for rural Minnesota, for rural America, has been a lot of our younger people don't find opportunities locally. And so the more we can do with people who are already here to provide them the skills that match up with the local employers, the better off we'll be. We just had Nan Whaley on the show and she was saying the one thing Ohio is now known for exporting is its college students, right? And we don't want to do that. We don't want our kids to have to leave their state or leave their county because there's no longer opportunities for them. We have to change the way we look at it. You know, now most people finish their gig as CEO and they leave town, right? But you have stayed there and been a leading leading the Hormel Foundation, which you said you know has been there since the 40s, to improve the quality of life in the town and the neighboring communities. Uh, for people that don't know, the Hormel Foundation gives millions of dollars a year to local causes like education and scholarships and food donations. Jeff was just mentioning that he and his wife also are doing scholarships for local high school students to go off to college. I know you are also voluntarily offering your services to teach business at the University of Minnesota. Is that right? Yeah. I ended up taking this fall off because I had a little conflict here with because oh, you're a little busy, a busy Jeff? campaign. But the last four <laughs> years definitely it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. Okay, so well, why don't we go through a little bit about the issues that you you want to bring to Congress and that you want to talk about? Because 
you have to address them. And obviously, we've been talking about inflation a bit and everyone's talking about it. Most of us can see that things are more expensive, but most of us don't have a working understanding of the global economy or supply chains or what really drives costs. Someone was saying today, oh, America's inflation is at 8.2%, but this is Biden's fault. And I thought, well, Australia's inflation is at 10%. That's not Biden's fault, right? It's a worldwide issue. And as someone who spent their career bringing affordable goods to American consumers, you might be the right person to tackle this moment and explain it to us. I mean, you, you pointed out absolutely correctly that, I mean, it was a global phenomenon kicked off by this, you know, almost unprecedented historical shutdown from COVID. And then even as things open up, they open up very unevenly. As you recall here in our country, I mean, you could get goods in some cases. So you could, you know, do home improvement projects, buy a motorcycle, those kind of things. And there was a big backup on those because suddenly there was so much more demand. And then on the other side, on services, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't go to hotels, you couldn't go to restaurants, you couldn't travel and so forth. So it, it, it created a huge level of disruptions. And then, oh, by the way, it's a global economy. So when you're making goods and services, you're relying upon things from other countries. And those countries may be under complete shutdown. I mean, China has had a much more rigorous policy than us in terms of shutting things down. So it, so most economists that I've listened to say you could attribute maybe 1% to 2% of U.S.'s inflation to some of that spending that went on to try to keep people employed and try to keep our economy going during that time frame. But it's totally correct to say there's no way you can attribute all of it to it. And, it, you know, it hasn't helped to have the, the war that Russia has imposed upon Ukraine. It hasn't helped to have the latest decision with Russia and Saudi Arabia deciding to you know, jack up oil prices and so forth. I put out a 10-point plan right at the beginning, even of my primary campaign, and, and some of those things are already happening. So President, President Biden did tap into the strategic oil reserves. He did authorize ethanol E15 to be sold on a year-round basis. And then, very notably, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. So that finally allowed Medicare to negotiate prescription drug costs. It set cap on, caps on insulin and so forth. And... It provides some great investments on the green energy side so we can finally tackle climate change. So I think we're going to start seeing improvements related to those things. Yeah. And people can also see that government can work. I think for so long we saw government not working that we've forgotten that government can actually do good things and can actually make positive change. Like all the other candidates we've had on here, you're also seeing education as a key to opportunity in this country. The Republicans have obviously been trying to undermine the public school system for years. Now it's become a major talking point for the culture wars, parents' choice, CRT, underfunding and undermining our teachers so they quit. And ultimately, it's also the Republicans can say, see, public schools don't work. We should privatize everything. We should have charter schools. We should have Christian schools, this kind of thing. But you personally know it can work. You went to public school yourself. Your children went to public school. And you're now helping children who are in the public school system go off to college. So talk to me about why you think education is such an important thing to be focusing sure. on. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, to me, the public schools are the bedrock of every community, both the smaller communities like what I live in and also the, the bigger metro areas. Uh, I don't believe in vouchers. I don't believe we should be taking resources away from our critical public schools. You know, I, I do believe that we can continue to provide opportunities for students who are looking for them after their 12th grade year. So whether that's Having a, a more affordable option for two-year degrees, looking at tech degrees, uh, th those things are all great options. And even in our high schools, I mean, I think we could do more, for example, in the computer education area. You know, we were chatting earlier about having jobs that can be local. I mean, I have two, we have four children and, and our two daughters are married and both of their husbands 
work in the IT world. They both live in Minnesota. One works for a Chicago company and one works for a Toronto company. And so those are jobs that can be done here in Austin, can be done in Mankato, can be done in Owatonna. And so I think if we provided more assistance in those areas, that would really help. The thing that we really have to talk about with this race is what really distinguishes you from your opponent right now, which is where you stand on women's health care. You said you are firmly opposed to any laws that would turn women or their doctors into criminals. And you've said that the Supreme Court created a chaotic situation when it got rid of Roe, and it now falls on our leaders to protect women's reproductive health. Your opponent feels the complete opposite. So you want to just talk me through that because I think people really need to get their head around what is at stake here. Yeah, thanks for raising that question, Lee. So it's been the evolution since I started running back in March, because the special election, we were early. Uh, you know, there was a case before the Supreme Court, but we hadn't heard anything. Then there was right. a leaked decision. And then there was the actual terrible decision. And, you know, I, I was an attorney originally at Hormel, so I, I have that background. And our case law, our, our law that emanates from the Supreme Court and those precedents are part of our legal system. And the notion of having something that is a right that's been in place for 50 years, just suddenly withdrawn, uh, the rug pulled out from under it, uh, is a recipe for chaos, and that's exactly what we're seeing. So yes, to me, the solution is codify the law then, go back to Congress. I think I saw just today, I think President Biden has said that's going to be his first priority with the next congressional session, is putting that in front of in front of Congress and getting, getting that done. And to me, that is the right solution. And it's a solution that matches, honestly, what the public is looking for. Even in southern Minnesota, if you, you know, if you ask people, are you pro-life or pro-choice in southern Minnesota, it's about 50-50. But when you get into the issue of, okay, but what do you want to have happen? Do you want Roe v. Wade to be overturned? Do you want women to be turned into criminals? Do you want the government to be making that decision in the first instance? It quickly becomes two-thirds, one-third. No, they don't want that. And so no, I would I would pledge to codify that. My opponent, on the other hand, applauded the reversal of Roe v. Wade said, oh, this is great. We'll now have a dialogue at the state level about this. He was he served in the state legislature already, and he voted over 60 times already to restrict abortion and contraception rights. So the we know where the dialogue's going with, with Mr. Finstead. And so that's it's just sort of a disingenuous attempt to sort of deflect attention from an issue where he knows he's out of step with the district. Yeah, well, that's a big Republican move right now to scrub their websites clean, to pretend they didn't say what they said, because it's a very, very uh, unappealing position to say that women are now going to be criminals for taking care of their own health, that women can die of atopic pregnancies, that women can have placenta previa and end up dying in the hospital of an absolutely treatable problem. Um, this is something that we really need to differentiate ourselves on. The other thing I would say you need to differentiate yourself with your position is, and your opponent, is democracy itself, right? It's a sense that we be respecting the will of the voters, whether that's who we voted for in an election or what our duly appointed representatives vote for in Congress. So despite the popularity and the need for key elements like bringing down prescription drug prices and capping the amount of money seniors pay out of pocket and new green energy sources that we are talking about from the Inflation Reduction Act, your opponent said that voting against the Inflation Reduction Act was an easy no for him. He's been in Congress for two months. <laughs> he's had a month and a half on the job, and he's already saying it was easy for him to vote against the Inflation Reduction Act. And that seems like a real problem for me. Well, it was worse than that, Lee. I mean, he literally, his vote, so our special election was on a Tuesday, and he voted on Friday. Oh. I mean, I'm not sure how, I, I don't know how he had time to even read Did the bill. Did he read bill, the bill? But, <laughs> but I think it was an easy no, because that's what his party told him to vote. And that's so, right. okay, I mean, I don't really need to read it, and, and that's, 
that was his track record in the legislature was he's just a very reliable vote for the, the super conservative side. And that's, that's his game plan thus far in Congress on the democracy point. Um, you know, we had, we had our second and I guess last debate, we were offered numerous debates, league of women voters, et cetera. And he turned most of them down, but we had two uh, forums and yesterday was one. And he got asked the question about January 6th. And basically his answer, he had two parts to his answer. One was, I have not been asked by a single voter any questions ever about January 6th. And, and my reaction was like, man, you must really live in a very narrow universe. I mean, you just must be in the echo chamber talking to your buddies or whatever, because it, it, it comes up all the time. It is a major concern of folks. And then secondly, that basically we should just stop talking about this. It's this bias committee that's in Congress. And that's the only reason this is even an issue. It's like, well, as bad as that day was, there are people running all over the country who are election deniers, that they're running to basically undermine people's right to vote. They're undermining the, their ability to count the vote. They're, and we, we just can't have that. We can't have nullifications of votes because you want to send fake electors or refuse to certify elections. Yeah, what a difference between you and your opponent, right? Like, he's perfectly fine with that. And he calls himself the uh, small government type. But if you're lockstep with today's Republican Party, that's the absolute opposite of small government. These are the people that want to take people's rights at a national level, who want to tell you who you can marry, tell you what you can read, tell teachers what they can teach, tell you who you can and cannot be and what religion you can and cannot acknowledge, right? That's not small government. That's going to be massive authoritarian overreach. Yeah, this this attack on individual rights doesn't end with abortion. I mean, you have Justice Thomas's concurrence where he explicitly says, oh, let's, let's go after contraception next. Uh, we have same-sex marriage in this country hanging in many states on the same Supreme Court that just pulled the rug out from under Roe. So, I mean, it, it is definitely a concern. We need to be very upfront about that. And ultimately, I guess it comes down to voting. And so that's why we're trying to encourage people that your vote makes a difference. And there is a very distinct choice in terms of, of what ways to address these types of things. I'm going to change gears here for a little bit because people always have the same criticism when it comes to being a Republican and a Democrat, right? Now, while being a super rich guy goes really far in the Republican Party, it can be a detriment to running as a Democrat. The concern is you're not going to relate to regular voters or you're elite and you're out of touch. But you have worked and lived with regular people for years. Like I said, you didn't start as a CEO. You worked your way up, right? You don't take a salary at the Hormel Foundation. You volunteer at the University of Minnesota. You live in the same house for the past 30 years. Your kids went to public school, right? So your personal shift away from the Republican Party was in many ways spurred by your aversion to Trump. The party no longer spoke to you. The party left you as opposed to you leaving the party, right? You called Trump divisive, disrespectful, the antithesis of a leader. And the entire Republican Party kind of took a hard right with him and followed him down that awful road that led to what we were just talking about, the disruption of the peaceful transfer of power, 1-6, everything that happened with that. And I think that we have to understand that we're shifting away from Republicans and even people like you who look like they might be the perfect Republican candidate are no longer in that party. Today's my birthday. I'm 64 today. And so for 11 of those 64 years, I was the CEO of the company. But as you correctly point out, and we all have backstories and backgrounds that are richer than that. I, I grew up in Pasadena, California. I went to integrated public schools. And, and when Leanne and I got married and moved to Austin, it was kind of honestly a culture shock to me because at that time, Austin was basically an all Caucasian community. It has become much more richly diverse in the ensuing years. We have students that speak over 50 languages in our local schools. 
And I've really tried to be part of the welcoming effort in that. Politically, in California, you register with a party. And so I was always a registered Democrat. My parents were Democrats. I was a Democrat. In Minnesota, you don't register for a party. And so over the years in business, there were certainly some candidates that I supported who were Republican. But there have also been candidates such as Amy Klobuchar. I've been a supporter for years, Tim Walls for years in multiple races. So I was kind of more apolitical, more in between. But yeah, Trump was sort of the, you know, the cliff, if you will. I mean, I to me, that that's just not a route I'm willing to take and, and a direction I'm willing to go. So I, I do think I can be a bridge uh, between people of different mentalities. I think I can be a bridge between urban and rural. I, I grew up in more urban, suburban area, but have lived now 30 plus years in rural Minnesota. I think people get defensive or confused about our two-party system a bit. Like, we need the Republicans. And I'm being very vocal these days saying, like, I don't think we need them. I mean, we need different viewpoints. We need healthy debate. We need to have all different points of view represented. But we don't need Republicans, especially as they are now. I mean, MAGA is a virus that has poisoned that party. Conservative values aren't dead. The Republican Party as it was is, right? You've called yourself a moderate progressive. You said for a long time you didn't fit into either camp. Your district is solid purple, right? You've been quoted saying your whole life you supported both parties, but you feel, especially at this time as a moderate person, that the Democratic Party is just more welcome, more opening. It's where more people belong, right? The Republicans are actively purging themselves of anyone who doesn't fall in line. You know, full example is Liz Cheney, right? No, definitely. So one of uh, one of the folks who's endorsed me uh, in this race is former Republican Governor Arnie Carlson from Minnesota. And, and he says, just what you just were saying is like the party that he used to be a part of doesn't exist in, anymore, really. I mean, in terms of what he saw as Republican values. And, and so definitely I'm trying to hold myself. I, I mean, I'm not running on a calculated basis as a moderate. It's just kind of who I am. I'm definitely more progressive when it comes to social issues, probably a little bit more conservative when it comes to financial issues. And I and I have met lots of voters in the area that are very interested in that. Former Republicans that feel their party left them that are looking for a home and looking for somebody they can relate to. Your district has never been Republican or Democrat since the 80s. Republican and Democratic leaders have constantly traded off representing Minnesota's first. Now, your opponent is running as a fifth generation farmer and family man with his seven children. But really, he's been in government for a while. And like you said, he voted 60 times against women's rights and women's reproductive care. His voting rights show he's not at all in line with what your voters need or in many cases want. He's right in line with the new Republican mega version of the Republican Party. Uh, he says he's trying to provide opportunity to continue to live in the greatest country on the world. With the current Republican positions of stripping people of their rights and sunsetting Social Security and Medicare and poisoning the environment and public schools being underfunded and college being out of reach, I don't know how we continue being the greatest country on earth if that's what we're doing. Well, I mean, I think it's I think we should be proud of our country, but I think we should be looking for ways to improve it. And the, the whole democratic process is one key area to do that. I, most of the time when I was in the role of CEO at Hormel, our congressperson was Tim Walz, who's our current governor now. And, and Tim and I didn't agree on everything, but he was always respectful and had an open door and was science-based and was fact-based. And so then he ran for governor and I'm wonderful that he won. I was a supporter of his. But then that opened the seat and Mr. Hagedorn came in and he had just a very different philosophy, not only a different political philosophy, but a winner take all philosophy that was kind of like, OK, even though I barely won these elections, I will shut out anybody who disagrees with me and only represent this this area. 
And thus far, and based on his track record, Mr. Pence does the same way. I mean, that's that was his voting track record in the state legislature. When he tells you things at a debate, like I've never heard anyone even mention January 6th to me, that confirms like, okay, you're just, you have no interest in talking to anyone who is outside of your bubble. And so what we need, I mentioned at the, at the debate yesterday, I mean, Congress is not popular today. Okay. It only has 20% favorability rating. And he blames that on, oh, it's because the Democrats are in charge. Well, just a few years ago, the Republicans were in charge. So his first two years of the Trump administration, they had the Senate, they had Paul Ryan was the Speaker of the House, and the favorability rate of Congress was 20%, the same 20%. So it's not <laughs> this magic solution. If the Republicans win, then everything's going to be wonderful. It's, it's a frustration by the public that it has become too polarized, too partisan, too nasty, and that we need to figure out ways to bridge those gaps and work together. And we need to return to representing what you're supposed to do is representing your district. And then if you're in the Senate, representing your state, as opposed to representing your party. Your party can represent your values. I think that's essential. But, you know, you want to speak for Minnesota's first. And I don't think your opponent's speaking for Minnesota's first. He's speaking for the RNC. And I think we have to differentiate that. Even though your district may right now look like it favors Republicans, your background, your business experience, your moderation, combined with your progressive social positions, make you an incredibly electable candidate. And I need people to understand what's at stake and come out and vote for you because we could take this seat and that would make a difference in Congress. And then we could show people that they could have more faith in Congress. We could have more people like Congress than 20%, right? So what can we do to help you win this seat? What do you need from us? We've kind of had a dry run of this election already because of the special election process. So in August, there, there was a special election. We ended up falling just 4% short, 5,000 votes. There's going to be more than 200,000 new voters in November based on I'm not comparing it to 2020, which was a historic turnout year, the huge presidential race. I'm comparing it to 2018, when Governor Walls won for the first time, a non-presidential year. It's still 320,000 voters versus 120,000. We have our college campuses back. We've been, we've been visiting there you know, numerous times, numerous places. The district has also changed a little bit because of redistricting, and we have a somewhat more favorable area and, and, and lost an area that was a little bit less favorable and then lastly, it's like, to me, it's finally, you know, I've been, this is my, actually my third state. We had our primary, we had our special election final, now finally November. And we're finally in a position where we're not having to drive all the turnout by ourselves because we were the only contested election on the ballot in May and in most cases in August. But every statewide race in Minnesota is up because of redistricting. So all the state Senate, all the state assembly, the governor, the Senate governor, attorney general, et cetera. And so People clearly know there's an election now. They're energized by it. And, and so it's, what, what could you do to help? I mean, obviously, we're always looking for financial help to make sure we can keep having messages to our voters about what we stand for. Uh, people are doing envelopes and, and people are doing phone calls and, and, and postcards and, 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 you know, anything really to just help with the, the total spirit of the effort. And we know we have, it's three weeks away and we're pushing to the end here. Oh, the spirit of the effort. I'm into that. That's what I want from everyone who listens to this podcast and in the country to put the spirit of the effort in for these next three weeks. I want to thank you for joining me today, Jeff. The Democrats are getting a second chance with you and honestly proving once again that there is a place for so many different voices in our party, for people that believe in democracy and human rights and the rule of law. And we have to make sure we vote for them every single time. And it doesn't matter what the letter or the color is. It matters what the person stands for and what they're going to do for their people. 
appreciate not only having this interview, but all that you do all the time to, to help improve our democracy. Oh, I believe in America, Jeff. I'm sure you do too. Thank you for having me today. So that was Jeff Edinger running for Congress for Minnesota's first district. Jeff is a perfect example of how the Democratic Party, unlike its opponent, is not a monolith. That we have many different voices brought together by our shared set of values. People always say they want to see more parties, but I like to remind them that we already have them. They just all fall under the Democratic umbrella. Jeff's race is the kind we need to be paying attention to because flipping a seat like his could be the difference between the continuation or end of our democracy, the difference between women having rights in America or having them stripped away, the difference between a leader who will fight for their districts and leaders who are content to be just one more vote for the Republican Party. As Jeff said, you can be proud of your country and still think you can work to make it better. I'd like to thank Jeff for joining me today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. There is so much at stake in this election. We can't leave a single thing on the table. So do not stop talking about this from now until November 8th. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.